I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michael Green, Chief of Obstetrics at Massachusetts General Hospital and Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Biology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Green has co-authored a perspective article on cell-free fetal DNA testing. Dr. Green, you point out both the benefits and the downsides of these CFDNA tests. Can you walk us through the most important ones as you see them? Sure. The most important benefits are that these screening tests help to give couples reassurance that their pregnancy appears to be normal with respect to several different kinds of potential chromosomal abnormalities very early in pregnancy. It must be emphasized that these are still screening tests as differentiated from diagnostic tests, the difference being that screening tests are not definitive and following the result of an abnormal screening test, the patient should still await the results of a diagnostic test to confirm the results of the screening test before taking any actions that might be irreversible. So the advantage is that it gives the couple early information about the pregnancy. The disadvantage is that the results from the test may be misconstrued by the couple as being a definitive diagnostic test. And there's a very important difference there. We've used screening testing in prenatal diagnosis for several decades now, and most of the other modalities have made it very clear, and physicians and now patients are fairly clear that a screening test is a screening test and not a definitive diagnostic test. With this new testing, there is some confusion, I think, that these tests are, in fact, definitive diagnostic tests, and they should not be considered as such yet. So in what circumstances would you actually recommend using a CFDNA test right now? I would recommend using the cell-free uh, DNA testing under the circumstances that have been endorsed by the International Society for Prenatal Diagnosis, and that is circumstances where the couple has a high risk uh, for a fetal chromosomal abnormality that is potentially detectable by the test. So the chromosomal abnormalities that are generally detected by the commercially available tests include abnormalities in the number of chromosomes 21, 18, 13, X, and Y. Other chromosomal abnormalities are not routinely examined in the currently available screening tests. The problem with some of the interpretation of who should be a candidate for the testing is tied up in the imprecision with which we have defined, quote, high risk, unquote. Let me explain that. In normal prenatal diagnostic testing in the past 35 to 40 years, we have considered women over 35 to be, quote, high risk on the basis of historical decisions that in more recent years we've decided are no longer useful. Let me explain that. Traditionally, age 35 was chosen because the only option we had for prenatal diagnosis was an invasive diagnostic test such as an amniocentesis. The major risk of amniocentesis is that it can cause a miscarriage or a spontaneous abortion due to the test. That risk was thought uh, in the early days of prenatal diagnosis to be approximately 1 in 200. Therefore, looking at a table 
of the risk of Down syndrome, which increases with advancing maternal age, the decision was made to offer amniocentesis to women who had a risk based upon their age of approximately 1 in 200 of having a fetus with Down syndrome at the time of amniocentesis. In recent years, more sophisticated screening testing has been able to distinguish women with advanced age who are at low, medium, or high risk, giving women let's say a woman who's 35 years of age, a new number for her adjusted risk of delivering a baby with Down syndrome. Furthermore, there has been some confusion over the years in the minds of both doctors and patients as to which numbers are appropriate to use as women get older. Specifically, should we use the incidence of Down syndrome that's found at the time of amniocentesis at 16 weeks, or should we use the incidence of Down syndrome that's found at the time of live birth? The difference here is that a substantial percentage of fetuses that are conceived with Down syndrome will actually either miscarry or result in late demises in utero and not come to live birth. Therefore, the risk of having a fetus with Down syndrome at amniocentesis at 16 weeks is approximately 1 in 200, but the risk of having a live birth with Down syndrome at age 35 is approximately 1 in 365. The difference between these numbers being the risk of loss due to or associated with having the chromosomal abnormality. So many of the validation studies that have been done for the commercially available cell-free DNA testing have used populations of women who have been high-risk, quote-unquote, by virtue of having a standard early screen that placed them at, quote, high risk. Many of these women, however, have been high-risk at an order of magnitude greater than would be associated with their age alone. So specifically, a 35-year-old woman under the old criteria would be considered high risk at an incidence of 1 in 365. But after an early screening for aneuploidy, that risk might actually be 1 in 20. The difference between 1 in 365 and 1 in 20 is quite material. And one of the concerns that we have in looking at websites that advertise, if you will, the cell-free DNA testing is that they do not make the distinction between a risk of 1 in 365 as, quote, high risk versus a risk of 1 in 20. Speaking of advertising, lab-developed tests like these don't go through the same FDA approval process as commercial test kits or drugs, so direct-to-consumer marketing can drive up demand, perhaps prematurely. Are there generalizable lessons here? Should the FDA process or rules about direct-to-consumer advertising be changed? That's obviously a regulatory issue that I don't honestly know whether the Congress would have to enact that or Health and Human Services can change those regulations. My guess is that Health and Human Services could change those regulations for the FDA. I don't know what the politics would be in changing those regulations, but certainly I believe that the laboratory-developed tests, which have not been regulated by the Food and Drug Administration to date, have come under considerably more scrutiny recently as 
problems with laboratory-developed tests uh, have been observed. Some examples from past experience have been laboratory-developed tests, for example, that claim to be able to detect a colon cancer by use of either blood or stool samples, which have later been proven not to be effective discriminators of risk. The history of laboratory-developed tests is not yet completely written, but a lack of FDA oversight, it would certainly seem to be a, a potential problem. The cell-free tests that you consider in your article focus on a few specific abnormalities that you've gone over, but researchers have now sequenced a whole fetal genome from cell-free fetal DNA in maternal blood, and that raises various ethical, clinical, and policy questions. Where would you draw the line in terms of screening? What information about a fetus should be sought and what not? That's a very important question, of course, and it has a bit of a complex and sort of bifurcated answer, if you will. The first issue is that even standard karyotyping, as we were doing it five years ago, brings a lot more information other than just the number of chromosomes, number 21, 18, 13, X, and Y. It detects abnormalities in chromosome structure and number that are not currently detected by the current cell-free fetal DNA testing. So the testing as it existed prior to this new testing brought more information. The promise of the future is for, as you have suggested, more extensive description of the fetal genome. But at the moment, that is not attainable at a reasonable expense and in a reasonable time frame. There's no doubt that the whole genome sequencing is coming. It's a matter of both machine and computer processing of enormous quantities of information in a timely fashion and at a cost that everyone will accept. A recent New York Times article described the high and widely variable cost of childbirth in the United States. Does prenatal testing contribute in any significant way to that cost? And in fact, should cost be a central concern in decisions about screening? We've been doing prenatal testing for uh, at least three decades now, and there's no doubt that it adds some modest cost to the entire cost of prenatal care overall. As a percentage of the total cost of prenatal care, labor, and delivery, it is really a very tiny minor fraction. The addition of the new tests will undoubtedly add some modest increase in cost to the overall expense of prenatal care, labor, and delivery, but its full impact has not yet been seen or determined because these tests are so new and at least at the moment are being used for a relative minority of all pregnant women. But there's no doubt that as we're able to do more screening and testing, there are costs associated with doing these tests, and they ultimately are borne by the patients and, if you will, our whole society. Texas just passed a law banning abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy. How will such an early cutoff affect screening for Texas women? Well, I suppose the first thing we should stipulate is that the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision made it illegal for any state to pose unreasonable hindrance in the way of a woman obtaining an abortion prior to 24 weeks. So an out-and-out ban on abortion after 20 weeks would seem to be contrary to the original Roe versus Wade decision. Nonetheless, if we uh, assume that the real purpose of passing that law was to bring 
bring yet another Supreme Court challenge against Roe v. Wade. And if the original Roe v. Wade decision were to be overturned and such a total ban on abortions after 20 weeks were to be put in place, it would have implications for all of the prenatal testing we do. The reason for that is that by the time a woman has, let's say, a screening test done and then a diagnostic test done and then gets the results of those and then makes the difficult decision to terminate a pregnancy, she could easily be beyond the 20-week limit that the new Texas law would impose. So the problems that would be posed by the new Texas law would not be unique for cell-free fetal DNA testing. It would be applicable to all of the testing that we have been doing to date. Thank you, Dr. Green.